0: My wife fell asleep in the bathtub and I think she's
1: dead. It was a night like any other, August 11th, 2008. Ryan and Sarah Widmer, married just four months, were in the beginning stages of building their new life together. After a typical work day, 24-year-old Sarah and 27-year-old Ryan relaxed on the sofa and turned on some sports. Sarah wasn't feeling well that day, so she decided to go upstairs after dinner to take a bath. Ryan stayed downstairs in the living room a little while longer, had a few beers, and continued to watch a football game, occasionally flipping the channel and checking in on the Olympics. Sometime after 10 p.m., Ryan was ready to call it a night, so he headed upstairs to get ready for bed. When he opened the door to the upstairs bathroom, he walked in to find a terrifying scene. Sarah was in the bathtub and didn't appear to be breathing. A panicked Ryan called 911. This is Ryan's version of events, but the police in this law and order Ohio community would have a very different version a version that didn't involve an accidental drowning of a healthy 24-year-old woman. Their version would ultimately win in the courts when Ryan was convicted of second-degree murder and later sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear Ryan speak to us from Ohio Correctional Reception Center, where he's serving his time. But before we meet the players involved in this case, let us briefly introduce ourselves for those who didn't listen to season one and welcome those people back who did. My name's Megan Sachs and I'm Amy Sloshberg. We are both criminologists and we have spent our entire careers working in the criminal justice system. My areas of expertise include bail reform,
2: plea bargaining, sentencing policy, serial offending, and more. I am an associate professor of criminology and department chair at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. My research focuses on miscarriages of justice, the negative implications of incarceration, and issues surrounding reentry. With an emphasis on policy and procedural reform,
1: you do a lot of work too now with exonerees, post exoneration, right? Because you're now you're now working on studies as well. So I, I mentioned that because some people do work on exonerations, mm-hmm. but you do the afterlife, right? Yeah. Like what happens after people are exonerated?
2: Exactly. Yeah, I'm interested in the reentry process for people who are exonerated.
1: Right, and and I think that people don't often, I think you're kind of unique in that way, right? Like a small group of people are looking at those post-exoneration.
2: You know, everyone thinks once an individual is exonerated, everything from there is all rosy, right? But that's when life is really starting for these individuals and it's really hard for them to, you know, get back.
1: Right. The healing process begins then. Mm -hmm. So I love that you do that work. Well, it's great to be back doing Direct Appeal Season 2.
2: Yes, it's been a long time coming.
1: For those of you who have asked, We weren't actually sure we were going to return with a season two of Direct Appeal, but we didn't expect that we would be inundated with letters, emails and phone calls with people asking for help on either behalf of themselves or for a loved one. So this kind of happened following the 2020 episode on Melanie McGuire's case. So I think because of, you know, just the, how many people need help, we felt compelled to take on another case. But this was harder this time around because we had so many people that wanted us to look at their case. And as most people know, we're a small team of three. We have full-time jobs and this is, you know, uh, hard. So we had to kind
2: of do a vetting process this time around. You know, like you said, we're a small team. We can't help everyone. You know, we're not lawyers and, you know, we people that we can't help, we like to at least give them options of where else they could go. But it's, Really sad to see how many people are desperately fighting for their loved ones and themselves. I agree. It was heartbreaking reading the letters. And I tried, yeah, we
1: did try to respond to everyone, at least giving them, you know, other suggestions for, um, you know, either either Innocence Projects or other organizations, other podcasts who might be able to look into it. We chose Ryan Widmer's case, though, after receiving a number of emails from someone who is a former doctor and I would say humanitarian, interested in writing what he perceived to be a wrongful conviction. And there was something about Ryan's case that sparked my interest right from the beginning, because Sarah was found in the bathtub by Ryan, and seemingly no one else had entered the house, which leaves us with two primary possibilities. One is that Ryan killed Sarah, whether in the heat of the moment or something more premeditated, or two, as he says, he found Sarah drowned in the bathtub. But what could cause an otherwise healthy woman in her 20s to drown in her own bathtub? And we were lucky, Amy, because we got some help in our investigation from journalist and author Janice Hissell, who covered Sarah Widmer's death and Ryan's case in the criminal justice system. Janice also wrote the book Submerged about her experience covering this case, about the many players involved, the politics, the media sensation, and her own changing feelings about Ryan Widmer's involvement in Sarah's death. Through Janice, Ryan, and others involved in this case, we'll present to you everything we learned, and in the end, you can decide. One disclaimer we'd also like to add, though, before we get into the details of the story, is that regardless, Sarah Widmer is a victim, and we will treat her with the respect and dignity she deserves. We'll do our best to be respectful of Sarah, and all the parties affected by her death.
2: Megan, after Direct Appeal Season 1, we got a lot of comments from listeners who were upset because they felt that Melanie was guilty or they felt she was innocent. And I think it's important to let our listeners know the way we're coming at this. It's not always so black or white, innocent or guilt. You're right. This is not just an exploration of innocence or guilt. It's
1: an exploration of the entire criminal justice process. And is due process working? You know, this is an exploration of what happens at the bail stage. What happens when someone is arrested? What happens when someone is indicted? We are trying to figure out if all of these mechanisms are in place. Are they working properly? And do they lead us to justice? Or at any part of this course, could justice be, you know, diverted because something went wrong at one of these stages? And I I think that's going to have consequences, not just for the person who we're investigating, but
2: for anyone who is ever
1: subjected to the criminal justice system.
2: And I don't want to spoil season one for those people who haven't listened and might want to go back and listen. But I personally, and I know you probably feel the same, Megan, I I went into that thinking one way and I came out of it thinking a total other way. And our listeners say the same thing. Some people were convinced one way and, you know, so I think it's important to just be open-minded and listen to everything before you're so quick to judge someone, right? You know, the way people are portrayed in the media, the way people are portrayed, the way we judge their affect in 911 calls or just when they talk, like none of these things are science and we really need to look at these cases more objectively.
1: And as was the case last time, because we uh, also received comments about it, we did try to contact law enforcement, prosecution, states experts, and people either declined to participate or just did not respond at all. As we go through the case, we'll let you know who those people are so that you know you realize we're doing our very best to balance the scales here, but we can only work with you know the people who are willing to participate with us. And as you're listening, I mean, we want to hear what you think. Um, So there's a couple ways you can reach out to us. You can always email us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. That's tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can send us a message through our website um, or you can leave us a voicemail at 570-844-0499. And of course, you can always engage with us on Instagram or Facebook. So now that we've discussed the vetting process and we've discussed all of these things, we'd like to introduce you to the subject of Direct Appeal Season 2.
0: As so I was growing up, I mean, everything was normal. My mom was um, about the best mom you could ask for. I mean, she um, worked her way up from being a secretary to an executive vice president of the company she worked for, and um, she just did everything we needed, and um, you know, it was myself, my twin brother, and then younger brother. I mean, we had a normal childhood and grew up all all played sports, you know. Um, you know, God did well in school, whatever. <laughs> and then when we, you know, when I was about into fourth grade, my mom and dad, that's when they got their divorce. And um, we moved to another area with just my mom and do the whole custody thing with my dad on the weekends and whatnot. So still relatively normal. And then at some point, you know, my brothers and I, um, didn't see my dad anymore for, for, um, you know, a lot of years growing up on throughout high school. And that was, uh, and then obviously then I went off to college and, um, uh, I guess that would, you say, would probably be about the end of my childhood there. <laughs>
2: Ryan Widmer
1: was born November 3rd, 1981, along with his twin brother, Aaron, to parents Jill and Gary. He also has a younger brother, Kyle. The family resided in a small, quaint, blue-collar community in the west side of Cincinnati, Ohio, where everything was seemingly going well for the family until about 1990. So at this time, Amy, Jill, and Gary filed for divorce. And unfortunately, as many divorces are, it was extremely contentious. And as a result, the boys cut off all contact from their father, Gary, and they wouldn't speak to him for several years to come. I always wonder about these divorces
2: um, that get so contentious that
1: children don't see their parents or speak to them for
2: years. I couldn't imagine. My parents got divorced, but it was not contentious. Well, no, maybe it was contentious, but not, you know, I don't, I couldn't imagine it being so contentious that I wouldn't talk to my parents.
1: Did you stay with your dad? Or mom, like it would? Do they share custody? Like, how did that work? I was already old. Oh, that's yeah. right. You were older. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just wondered. Like yeah. to to be broken off from your father, that must have been very traumatic, especially for three boys. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Regardless, you know, Ryan describes his childhood as still being a good one. The Widmers were a tight knit family. With the three boys, you know, they were tight with their mother Jill, and they spent a lot of time with their cousins. Ryan was also extremely close with his grandmother and spent a lot of time with her. Overall, Ryan was considered a nice, quiet guy who, by all accounts, was just laid back. That's the thing I've heard the most about him. Didn't show much emotion, wasn't an emotional guy, and wasn't like easily rattled. Here's Ryan's first cousin and avid supporter, Sean, talking about the Ryan he knows.
3: He's probably one of the most gentle, caring people I've ever been around. You know, like of the six of us, I would say he was be the most like non-aggressive docile peaceful type guy like he's the guy like you know when my grandmother was really in her last legs he was the one that basically took care of her waited on her hand and foot i mean he was he he did everything he's just the most caring selfless person i've ever been around
1: in fact his cousins and his brothers would even like poke fun at ryan because he didn't even like to really rough house with them he was just a gentle soul so you heard growing up, Ryan was very athletic. He played baseball and basketball. He was a huge sports fan. He graduated, as he said, from high school. I think it was Colerain High School in 1999 where he That's excelled. That's when I graduated. You graduated in 1999?
2: Yeah, we're the same exact age, me and Ryan. That's right, because you're younger than me. I forgot.
1: It's kind, of, it's kind of odd to be doing someone who's like the same age as you. Yeah. And think, think about where you are in your life and where he is at his. Regardless, um, Ryan received a partial athletic scholarship to play baseball at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I always think that's funny, Miami in Ohio. During college, he worked at an enterprise rent-a-car, and he was just a normal guy again by all accounts, had friends, worked hard. Chris Kist was Ryan's college baseball teammate and roommate. Ryan would be a groomsman at Chris's wedding, so they were incredibly close, and he was also very close with Dana, Chris's wife. So Dana agreed to speak with us, and here she is describing how she became friends with Ryan.
4: I actually met Ryan through my husband, Chris. Um, him and Chris were roommates in college, took several classes together, hung out together, and then decided to get an apartment um, off campus and live together for a while. Him and I spent a lot of time together, like at, when we were out at parties, just the two of us kind of chatting. Not that we didn't fit in with that crowd. It was just a lot easier to kind of hang out with each other. We got along really well, which was nice. He was just a laid-back, cool kind of guy. I don't know. He wasn't, he was funny. He um he was just easy to hang out with, easy to talk to. He was a good friend to Chris. He was always there for Chris, that was for sure. He was always over. So he came over for football games. He came over you know, we hung out a lot, especially when Chris and I were first dating.
1: Brian graduated in 2004 with a B.A. in sports studies, and he quickly found a job in the field, which we know can be quite difficult right out of college. He worked in the facilities and operations department at the Western and Southern Open, which is a local tennis tournament, briefly, before being hired in the sports marketing department at the Warren County Convention and Visitors Bureau, and that was in November 2004. He was reportedly good at his job. He climbed the ranks quickly, starting as a sports marketing assistant, and then he was promoted to sports marketing manager in 2006, and then he was promoted again just two years later in 2008 to sales manager. Ryan loved his job and he was very close with his co-workers. There were only nine employees, mostly older women, with whom I think he felt this kind of familial-type connection, almost sisterly-motherly. Things seemed to be going well for Ryan's career, but his friends felt like he needed something else in his life. And Amy, what do you think that something was?
2: A girlfriend.
1: Yes, love it was. They felt he needed a girlfriend. So... In August 2006, Ryan's close friend, Chris, kissed and wife, Dana, invited him on a blind double date to meet Dana's good friend, Sarah Stewart. Dana had met Sarah through a mutual friend who attended dental hygiene school with Sarah.
4: Sarah and I became really close. I mean, we were hung out all the time. She hung out at my house, even with just Chris and I. Um, I mean, my husband taught her how to drive a stick. I mean, she literally sat on the floor with me when I took pregnancy tests and I found out I was pregnant with my son and fed me pregnancy tests after pregnancy tests while I was going to the bathroom. And that's like probably way too much personal information, but that's the kind of person she was. <laughs> um, so it was our idea to our mind idea because I loved Ryan and I was like, they would just be so good together because to me, they they kind of are similar to Chris and I. Like, my husband Chris is a lot like Ryan. They're laid back. They just kind of go with the flow of things. They're funny. They're entertaining, but they just, they don't get up in arms about much of anything. They're not kind of like sassy and fiery like Sarah and I both are. So I feel like we had such similar personalities. And I was like, if we work so well, what if they worked? So. It was Chris and I's idea to hook them up and have them um, meet. We actually were there with them when they had their first dinner, just to kind of make things not weird, you know, sort the other people were there. I mean, I feel like they instantly kind of, uh, they liked each other. They were Sarah's kind of upfront in your face kind of personality. And like I said, Ryan's kind of laid back, but they seemed to get along really well. They chatted, chatted most of the evening and had little conversations that didn't even include Chris and I. And, you know, when they left, Ryan was like, can I get your number? Can we you know, do this again sometime? And then from then on, they started dating, which was awesome for us.
1: Sarah and Ryan clicked right away, and they began spending a lot of time together quickly. So a little bit on Sarah. She was born in 1984 to Ruth Ann and Michael Stewart. Um, he was uh, reportedly brilliant. He had a PhD in martial arts science and philosophy and grew up in Butler County, which is a blue-collar town about 25 miles from where Ryan grew up. Uh, Sarah had one brother, Mike Stewart. She was very active growing up, and like Ryan, she played many sports. Sarah graduated from high school in 2002 and then worked at a Sears Portrait Studio for a bit before enrolling in a dental hygiene program at Raymond Walters College. She completed that program pretty quickly in 2006 and was hired as a dental hygienist for Dr. John Becker in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, which borders Ohio. Unfortunately, in 2007, Sarah's father passed away after battling cancer, but her mother would eventually meet another man by the name of Mike Grimes, who was a Butler County Sheriff's deputy. And I think Matt might want to keep that in mind for later on in our story, he might come up again. Sarah was described as more high-strung than Ryan. Friends called her Sassy Sue. She was bubbly and liked to joke around. Let's hear Ryan on Sarah's personality.
0: I mean, really, she's just, I always tell people and, you know, it's just, she was really one of the best people I ever met. I mean, one of the things, um, I mean, I've always considered myself to be a good person, but one of the things she always really instilled in me is just showing your appreciation to people, you know, for the things they do and always being, um, you know, you can always count on her you know, she would always treat everybody with respect. And I think that's why a lot of the people that, you know, she dealt with at her work, um, you know, a lot of the customers always really liked her and the way we get a lot, like, you know, there's times when you can joke or things you can joke about that maybe some people can't joke about because maybe they're too sensitive. And her and I had that good mesh of, you know, no one to be serious and, and no one to joke. You know, I don't know. I think some people are just too sensitive and you can't say certain things or joke, but her and I, there's never anything she said offended me or never anything I said to offend her. You know, we just, we, we didn't have a problem laughing at each other. Let's put it that way. She wasn't afraid to, to tell you how she's feeling. I'm more of a passive person. You know, I'm not always going to be the one to to outright like, you know, tell somebody how it is she had no problem doing that um so we're very different in that way but as far as you know again like i just think our her and our personalities really messed well i mean you know we knew to be serious but we could also joke with each other it was i don't know there's never never a time that i could really remember where we even had so much as any kind of a major argument about or dispute about anything
2: and do you notice when he talks about Sarah, he kind of lights up? Yes. Right? Like his voice sounds kind of flat, you know, in other contexts, but he sounds like really excited, right?
1: That's a great observation. And Mm -hmm. I noticed that, you know, I spoke with Ryan for many, many hours and that did happen. And you will hear that again, not obviously at times where it was something sad, but yeah, I mean, he did seem to light up. I like his description of Sarah's personality too. I know Dana talked a little bit about her, but she also describes her.
4: She was fun. She was funky. She was sassy. She didn't take shit off of anybody. I think that's why we got along so well, because we have very kind of similar personalities, I feel like, when it comes to that. But she was very smart, very loving, super loyal, like just one of those friends that at any moment you call, that she's there. So she was such a good person.
2: Megan, that sounds
1: like a description of you. No, I've li- but I've listened to this a couple times, and the descriptions of her was She was fun. She was feisty. She was in control. Like I'm not kidding you. I thought the same thing. I'm like, this does sound like me. Yeah. I feel like the description of their relationship also kind of sounded like me and James, just to be honest. James is more laid back than me. Like he's well, everyone's more laid back than you. That's actually that's a (laughs) fair point. Okay. That's a fair point. But I felt like, you know, Sarah was the kind of woman who was self-assured too. She knew what she wanted. She had a take charge personality. And I think that meshed very well with Ryan's go with the flow attitude as described by Ryan and Dana. And they were both, Ryan and Sarah, both close with each other's families as well. Ryan's mom, Jill, adored Sarah. She spent a lot of weekends with Ryan's family at their lake home in Kentucky. And reportedly, Sarah's family also liked Ryan a lot. The two seemed to be meant for each other. And this was observed by many around them, uh, not just Ryan or Dana. Ryan's cousin, Sean, also made this observation.
3: They had a really positive relationship, but they were always, uh, she was kind of the boss and, uh, that was fine. She was like, uh, feisty. She was like his, uh, she complimented him greatly, you know, just, re- just had a really great relationship. You know, I never saw him argue or anything like that.
2: You know, after I did these
1: interviews, I was starting to see it was consistent.
2: They were also in the honeymoon stage of their relationship.
1: I mean, I think they were in the honeymoon stage probably for the whole time. When did, do- I don't actually know. When does the honeymoon stage end, you think? A couple of years, probably. Okay. And they, then they they definitely were. Their relationship moved fast, actually. And just a few months after that first date, and in, uh, I think it was about early 2007, Ryan and Sarah purchased a home together in Hopewell Valley, Ohio, which was about 25 miles north of Cincinnati, to put it in um, context here. And this was Hamilton Township, which was in Warren County, And this area was considered a, you know, somewhat conservative, safe, nice place. There were a lot of young couples and young families building their first homes here. So it was kind of clear that they were on the fast track in terms of their relationship. And soon after the move, Ryan knew that he wanted to marry Sarah. Uh, His grandmother had passed away and left him enough money to buy a ring. And after about a year together, in the spring of 2007, 26-year-old Ryan proposed to 23-year-old Sarah.
0: We were probably dating about a year, year and a half before I asked her to marry me. So my mom went with me to help pick the ring out. Obviously, Sarah had no idea. Um, And Sarah and I had went over to my mom's house, and she was having a little get-together with some of her work friends and whatnot. And one of her mom's work friends was saying stuff to me, and even my mom was kind of running her mouth about it. And I thought Sarah actually heard him, you know, and I was worried that my mom was going to tell her because my mom was really happy. I mean, she really...
4: This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Really happy that I was going to ask her to marry me. So, um,
0: I actually got the ring on a Friday and, you know, it was just so nervous and I wanted to include my dog, um, CJ, he was a French Bulldog. And the reason I thought it was so funny is because he was a grump and a lot of people didn't like him. So I wanted to include him because originally she didn't like him, but once, you know, he lived with us and she got to see how he really was, she ended up really liking him. So she was in the shower on the Friday when she got home from work. And lo and behold, I got I coaxed him to go upstairs and go into the bedroom and the bathroom and he went up and she didn't really see it. And so she ended up reaching out a pen and she saw it.
1: At this point, our call was interrupted. And if you've ever had a deal with a prison's phone system, you know the frustration. Unfortunately, this is common with most prisons and it will happen again during this podcast. You might also notice that at times, the quality of Ryan's phone calls is not great and will vary throughout this podcast. This is unfortunately something we could not control and we do our best to make it listenable.
0: You know, once you saw the ring, around CJ's neck I just said will you and of course he said yeah she never let me live that one down just because it was so in a way I just felt I still felt a little rushed just because I was worried my mom was going to break the news to her I guess so I just I I don't know why I wasn't rushed at the moment I just I think I just rushed it but I thought it was pretty cool you know using CJ and she obviously liked you know the fact that I asked her to marry me We went out to eat there was a a real nice like local Italian restaurant that I loved and had um uh, we went to my mom's and then went there, and my mom, you know, like pre-ordered a bottle of champagne there for us, and then we met her mom and her mom's boyfriend. So yeah, everybody was happy, and I had, I had asked her mom, you know, before I talked to her mom about it because her dad passed away. So you know, obviously, again, the traditional thing of asking the father for hand in marriage. I didn't necessarily ask her mom for her hand, but I pretty much, you know, made sure if she was okay that I was going to ask her daughter to marry me.
1: So this is a happy time for them. They got engaged. I. I think using the dog is actually cute. I think that's something that you would appreciate, right? Yeah, very cute. I love how he said the dog was a grump. I know. I thought so, too. <laughs> so cute. So what did he, he got flack for, I think, saying, will you? Maybe he didn't like, I don't know if he didn't finish the sentence because he was saying he got flack for this. And I, I remember thinking I should have asked him what he was, I think because he just said, will you?
2: Yeah, it sounds like he may be he froze or something. He got nervous and just said, will you? I don't know. Will you seems like okay, though, if you're holding a ring.
1: I guess so. I'm not really sure. I also know that, you know, Ryan's a little quieter, a little shyer, and maybe was a little nervous or embarrassed. Mm-hmm. He said he was rushed. He, you know, it's probably with the nerves. But Sarah was happy nonetheless, and the two of them were engaged. And on April 19th, 2008, they got married. Father John Tonkin presided over their Catholic wedding at a church in Ohio, and the reception followed at... Ryan's mother's country club. And then the pair went on to honeymoon in Costa Rica. So everything was great for this young couple. They were in, as you said, Amy, the honeymoon phase. However, just 114 days later on the seemingly normal day of August 11th, 2008, everything would change for the Widmers. Nothing
0: was really out of the ordinary. You know, she got up and and left for work. Um, before I, before I left. I don't remember exact, but I know we probably, you know, text a few times throughout the day. And, you know, everything was normal until, um, you know, I I got home and I remember her telling me um, over the phone when we talked that she just wasn't feeling real well. So we didn't really have much to do that that night anyway. So when she got home, um, I was still trying to take care of it and get the grass to grow at the house. That's how new it was. So I was out kind of working on the yard, a little bit watering and, and had dinner together and just kind of had some leftovers that we just kind of microwaved and warmed up. Um, uh, she just laid on the couch and, you know, I could just tell she wasn't feeling real well, but just a headache, I mean, was the main thing. Um, uh, nothing to where it alarmed me that something was wrong with her. Now she just laid on the couch and I kind of rubbed her neck and head, you know, just kind of tried to massage her a little bit and, uh. I would know, keep kind of going in and out outside, doing stuff outside, and uh, and then when she went up to uh, take take her bath that night and go to bed, I mean nothing nothing raised an alarm on me like thought that something was really wrong with her. I mean I know you know I was sitting right next to her when she talked to her friend um, Amy, and I mean she had even told her that night that she wasn't feeling well, and she had to get off the phone. So. I mean I was watching the Bengals were playing their first. Preseason game that night. um So I was, you know, again, watching that even the preseason. I mean, it's not really a real game. So I was kind of just still, again, going in and out outside a little bit here and there, watching that. And I just know from that time it had to be, you know, the game probably would have started about 8:30. It was a little bit after that. Of course, you know, she told me she loved me. You know, we kissed each other real, a real quick. kiss before she went upstairs. um And, and I mean, she, she went to check the front door. She was always, you know, not worried about locking the door, but just kind of, um, not even OCD about it, but just would always make sure it was locked, and I kind of laughed it off with her, just because I'm like, yeah, of course it's locked, we haven't even gone out the front door, so, so she went up, and I won't, you know, I had to be like 10, just after 10 o'clock when I went upstairs, uh, the game wasn't quite over yet, but I was, um, also, watching the Olympics were on that night. It was one of the years when Michael Phelps was setting all kinds of records, so I was flipping back and forth between that um, as well as the game. Then I went up about you know, 10-ish, 10 o'clock, somewhere in there, and um, walked in the room, and I kind of you know, took my clothes off out into my boxers because that's where I was sleep in my boxers, sometimes t T-shirt, but at the end of the summer, sleeping in my boxers. And put that down and then you know, walked into the bathroom um, to brush my teeth and stuff, and that's when uh, all
1: right. At that point, we reached our time limit on the prison phone, so we had to reconnect to hear Ryan continue describing what he saw as he walked into their bathroom.
0: When I walked in, um, so her head was opposite towards the door, and she was laying, um, her head was underneath like the water spigot, um, and she was, you know, her face was looking upwards, but she was underneath the water. Um, so automatically, I mean, I just dropped down to my knees and, you know, pulled her upper torso part, you know, her body up out of the water. Um, and I'm just trying to get a reaction from her at that point. You know, I mean, she was just lifeless. I mean, I, you know, I was completely shocked walking in to see what I saw. And, you know, so I'm kind of, you know, giving her arrow tab- Sarah, Sarah, um, you know, just trying to understand what's going on. And obviously when I was not getting any kind of reaction, um, just my instinct was to call 911. And I reached, her phone was sitting on the, um, sink, uh, sorry, the vanity. And I grabbed her phone, called 911. And I didn't think it rang through or lost service. So I hung up her phone. Well, my phone was out on the nightstand by the bed. So I ran out, grabbed my phone. Uh, and obviously I had her up, you know, out the water as best I could. Um, And before, well, I should say that I take that back. Before all that, I actually pulled the drain plug, which it's hard to describe the drain plug. It's not just one you pull up. You kind of had to pull and twist it. And the water, um, you know, at that point was draining out. And, you know, I just the whole time, just still trying to get the reaction from her. And uh, when I left to go get my phone, You know, I didn't let her fall back down in the tub. I mean, I tried to just kind of leave her as best I could. ran out and got the phone. As I'm coming back in, I'm grabbing, you know, picking her back up, you know, out of the bottom portion of the tub, I guess you would say, and called 911. And obviously, I know, I'm sure you have the 911 recording, but everything after that was on the phone with the 911 um, operator.
1: Ryan's just described what started off as a normal day. They went to work, they came home, they watched some sports. Uh, a couple things to note in his description. One thing is that he said Sarah wasn't feeling well. But also, you should know that her friend called. Mm-hmm. Her friend Amy also would later say that Sarah wasn't feeling well that day, as well as people she worked with. Apparently, she had some sort of bad headache going on, which is why she went upstairs to take a bath and went to bed a little bit early. Uh, it's just something to keep in mind. but. Ryan's account now is that he goes upstairs to go to bed, you know, he's just watching the Bengals, and he finds his wife underwater, face up, clearly looking, he says, lifeless. Didn't he say face down in the 911 call? So we're going to listen to that 911 call next episode, and we're going to dissect it because this is going to become... A huge piece of this puzzle, and a really a huge source of controversy with what he said one time versus another. So was she face up or face down? Also, he said she was by the spigot, which is interesting. Yes. Why, why do you think so? We uh, we we didn't talk about this, but James and I actually discussed this as well.
2: Well, because if you're taking a bath, why would you have your
1: your head would your feet would be by the spigot? That's exactly what James said. And I I thought about it because I was like, that's true usually. But I can think of a couple scenarios. Uh, Like if you're
2: washing your hair, maybe?
1: It's exactly what I said. But
2: still, if you're washing your hair, almost like your face would have to be under the water to wash. Like,
1: I don't know. Well, I'm just, I mean, this is purely anecdotal. But when I've taken baths before, I would turn my head if I wanted to wash my hair and put it under. You know what I mean? I'd lean back and do it. Maybe
2: she hit her head on the spigot doing that who knows
1: that's a really interesting point amy and um one that we'll have to wait till later on to see if this was explored so ryan had just found sarah lifeless underwater in the tub at least according to ryan she appeared to have drowned but her death would be a mystery that would raise so many questions the most important how does a healthy 24 year old woman drown in a bathtub? This time on Direct Appeal, we examine the 911 recording while Ryan describes what was not on the call. The investigation continues as we learn what the search warrant unveils. Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at direct podcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.